So, with that said, I am now planning to offend everyone. Because we're going to be in chapter 13 of the book of Romans. And whenever you start to get into the arena of discussing politics and governing authorities and taxes and revenues and Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, oh boy. You can definitely touch some nerves. But it's really not, I mean, it is me. This is stuff that all of us, I think, as Christians have to chew on. You know, Paul said, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Paul probably said it at some point too, but, but actually I think it's in the, the book of Hebrews where it says that the Hebrews had not grown up. They continued to drink milk from the Word, but not chew on the meat. And there are some topics within the Word of God that take some digestion that we have to spend some time pondering, thinking about, and dealing with. Because a lot of times, the Word of God speaks directly to our heart. It divides asunder the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so we have to deal with that. And I think this passage in Romans 13, short though it may be, it's only uh, 14 verses, has a lot of meat in it. So I'm going to try to address this uh, in, a, in the scope of biblical directives. I'm not going to be speaking too much about current political winds, um, but I hope you will be able to take and apply some of what I say today to whatever your political persuasion may be, but also recognizing that there's a far greater purpose for you and for me than conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, whatever. It says in verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Now, God has established three institutions if we read throughout the Bible, you will find that God has established three different institutions. First, in Genesis chapter 2, he established the institution of the home, the marital covenant between man and woman. A woman will leave her father and mother, the two will be joined together as one, and they will cleave to one another. The, the Christian home, or the godly home. That is one institution that God has established. And then later, in Genesis chapter 9, God established human government. Of course, we all know the story. There in Genesis chapter 6, uh, man's evil had risen to an extraordinary level. God had to destroy all of mankind. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God directed Noah to build a boat, an ark, through which Noah and his family would be saved from God's judgment. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God establishes the concept or the institution of human government. A few things changed, actually, after the flood. Um, before the flood, Noah or all of the people were vegetarians. God had given him the plants of the earth to eat. But after the flood, he says, 
Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, now I give you everything. So men could begin to eat of the flesh of, of animals. But God said, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. For your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. And then in verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So God establishes the, the institution of human government. The idea that if man violates a law or a concept that God has set forth, that other men will be in a position to judge them and to institute penalty upon them. In this case, if, if it's a case of murder, man will be able to exercise the most extreme punishment, that of capital punishment. And so the institution of human government is established there in, in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. Noah, of course, is the one who gets that going and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. So that's the second institution that God establishes. The third institution we read about in Acts chapter 2, and that is the institution of the church. The day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire blew upon those in the upper room, the 120 that were gathered. And the church was birthed. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in other tongues. And Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against His church. His church is an institution that ultimately will prevail and will uh, continue. So these are the three institutions that God has established within the Bible. And so all authority, whether it's in the home, whether it's in human government, or whether it's in this church, is established ultimately by God. That's where it comes from. And, and that really, if you understand God as an omnipotent, that is all-powerful, almighty being, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, then that's absolutely the case, how the case must be. God is the final and ultimate authority. And so wherever authority exists, wherever it is exercised, ultimately God is behind that authority. God is allowing that authority to exist and to be carried out. We read about in the Bible that Satan is called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And God has allowed Satan to operate in that capacity for God's own sovereign purpose and reasons. Originally, God had given authority over the earth to Adam and to Eve, but when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they turned over their authority to Satan. Because we're always in uh, obedience uh, to those whose uh, direction we follow, and so they followed Satan's direction. They turned over authority to uh, Satan. So Satan is the God of this world. So God allows Satan to have some authority within the world. And we see that in the book of Job. You remember in the book of Job how the, the sons of God were presenting themselves to God and Satan came before God. And of course, they had the discussion about Job and God called out Job, what a great and a godly man he was. And Satan, yeah, that's because you have given him coverage. I can't touch him. And so God allowed Satan to have a certain 
amount of impact upon Job's life. God allowed that. God controlled that. So there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, this is not a a thought that is unique to the Apostle Paul. Jesus said much the same thing when when they tried to trip him up and they brought him the denarius and and they said, who should we give honor to? To God or to Caesar? Who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus, of course, said, let me see the coin. And he said, whose inscription is this? It was Caesar's. And he says, give then to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give unto God that which is God's. So Jesus said much the same thing. And Peter also, in his epistle, says essentially the same thing in chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 13 of his first epistle, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as God's servants. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, you read through that and you think, oh, that sounds very good, until you stop and think about who was the emperor Peter was referencing here. The emperor, of course, was Caesar Nero, who was the first Caesar in a wave of Caesars that would persecute the church. Intense, incredible persecution that Nero uh, carried out. He would impale people on posts along streets in, in, in the Rome, Christians actually, put oil upon them, and light the streets with their bodies. And yet here Peter is saying, honor the emperor. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Why God allows some rulers who are truly evil to have some authority over our lives. Stop and think about for a moment, if you will, 1932 through 1945. The Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. And he certainly wasn't even the worst in human history. We all know the story of the concentration camps and the millions of Jews that were were killed and and really many, many others that were persecuted under, under Hitler's reign. But he wasn't even the worst. And under Stalin and Mao Zedong in the 20th century, well over 20 million people, and that's a conservative estimate, well over 20 million people were killed for their faith in those regimes. And yet God says that we're to respect those authorities. We are to submit to them. And that if we do not do so, we will bring judgment on ourselves. It says in verse 3, back in Romans chapter 13, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your own good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword or that ultimate punishment capacity for no reason. 
They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, in other words, not only because if you offend, you may be punished, but also, and probably more importantly, as a matter of conscience. In other words, a recognition of the reality that that authority that you are respecting, that authority that you are responding to, that law that you are obeying, you are doing so in response to God's authority. That's what the conscience there is speaking of. A conscience towards God. A good conscience towards not rebelling against the authority that He has established or that He is allowing. So you stop and you say, well, hold on, Greg. What about living under a regime perhaps like Adolf Hitler's or Mao Zedong's or Joseph Stalin's? What do we do then? Do we obey in every respect? No. No. This is, of course, speaking of in general governmental terms. Now stop and think about it for just a moment. If we had no human government whatsoever, if every man was just free to do what was right in their own eyes, whatever they wanted to do, what would that condition be? What is it known as? Anarchy, exactly. I could go up and take your purse, and if I wanted to, that would be my prerogative. And there would be no uh, ability on your part except for the fact that you might be upset about that, and you might take a, a, a stone and knock me upside of the head. That's anarchy. There's no uh, accountability. There's no expectation of, of behavior. There's no uh, judgment that will come upon wrongdoing. So even in the most uh, vile and evil forms of human government, there is order. I think it's interesting that in our culture today there has been, uh, in, in many places, uh, a real desire and moved, movement towards Islam. And I think that oftentimes that's really not due to the fact that Islam has anything to offer other than people perceive a sense of order within it and an immediate justice. I may be wrong. But the point being here is that ultimately we are responsible to obey the government regardless of if it's a government we agree with or disagree with as a matter of conscience towards God except for in three specific circumstances. There are three times when we are justified scripturally to not obey the authorities uh, that are established over us. The first instance is whenever the authorities established over us direct us to violate God's commandments. That happened in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Peter and John had been forbidden by the Sanhedrin, the ruling government there in uh, Judea, to no longer speak in the name of Jesus Christ to no longer proclaim the gospel. And Peter said to them, whether it is right for us to obey you or to obey God, you be the decider. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking those things which we have heard and seen. We must obey God rather than men. And so that is an area wherein we are justified in disobeying the directives of our government. 
if our government is telling us to directly disobey God. For example, under the reign of the emperor Domitian in the latter part of the first century, Domitian declared himself as a god and required uh, worship as a god. Everyone in the empire was required to go into a temple and to offer a sacrifice unto Domitian and to declare Caesar is God. Well, as you might imagine, that didn't go over well in the Christian community or the Jewish community for that matter. And so there was a great persecution, literally millions of people that were killed in that persecution. And so they chose to obey God rather than men. The second area that uh, we can disobey our government's directives, and this is actually codified in, in American law, is as a matter of conscience. When your conscience tells you you cannot follow through with the law that has been set forth. For example, there are what are called conscientious objectors, pacifists, with regards to service in the military. That's been in place for some time. It's a matter of conscience. And in Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned. In this particular conscience, he's talking about what we can eat or not eat because their eating is not of faith. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So if our conscience is violated, if we do not believe in what we are doing, then we have to take responsibility for that. So there are times when our conscience dictates that we are not to do what the governing authorities are telling us to do. Now, depending upon the governing authorities, there may be a consequence for you following your conscience. But from a scriptural perspective, that is authorized. The third area, and this is an area that we're really beginning to uh, encounter in America, really around the, the globe, but the third area is where a law is specifically immoral very directly immoral. For example, the Supreme Court sometime in the next little while is going to make a decision about whether or not same-sex couples can be married under the Constitution. Now, if that happens, as I think a lot of people believe it might, and the uh, government says it is a uh, constitutional right for people to be married of the same sex, then in America that's going to be happening. It's already happening in certain states. Um, but as a Christian, that is an immoral law. God established them in the beginning male and female. It's an inversion of God's order. It's not that homosexuality is a worse sin than any other sin. It's just a, a direct inversion of God's order. God created them male and female. It's an immoral law, much like the law that the Supreme Court established in 1973, Roe v. Wade, that allows for the killing of unborn children. That's a law that Christians cannot follow because it's immoral. Now, 
again, when you choose to disobey a governmental directive, authority, whatever, there will be a consequence. Peter, who said to honor the emperor, ultimately was crucified upside down by that very emperor because he would not stop preaching the gospel. There was a consequence. We, we don't necessarily follow God, church, with impunity. There is impact that our decisions have. When we choose to follow God, sometimes, sometimes, you'll suffer. Usually not for doing good, and that's what uh, Paul and Peter are getting at here, we should never suffer for doing good. We as Christians should be among the best citizens. It says in First uh, Timothy chapter two, that as Christians, we are urged, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. So we are to be praying for those in authority over us, praying for those who, who rule in government. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. I remember seeing a bumper sticker back during uh, George W. Bush's uh, presidency. And the bumper sticker said, George W. Bush is not my president. The person obviously was probably Democratic, probably a liberal. I saw one just a couple of weeks ago, said the same thing, only it was about Barack Obama. Barack Obama is not my president. Well, you know, as a Christian, we are to slander no one. We are to, to be peaceable. We are to be praying for those in authority over us. Even sometimes when we don't agree with their politics. We don't necessarily like the governing strategies that they are taking. It's tough. But as a matter of conscience, we are to be in submission to and be obedient to those people, except in those three uh, instances where the Bible gives us an option out, but even in those situations, we are to um, be willing to take the consequences for our behavior. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Again, much the same that Jesus said. Give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And give unto God that which is God's. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So really, for us as Christians, if love is our guiding light, 
If love is the, the fruit of the Spirit that fills us and overflows us and identifies us to the world, then really there's not much of a problem for us. We ought not be out there uh, disobeying the laws, creating an upswell of rebellion within our culture. We should be praying for those in authority. We should be uh, uh, using uh, our positions as Christians to love others and to demonstrate God's love. Even for those, here comes the hard part, even for those we disagree, even for those who are our enemies. How many of you ever prayed for Osama bin Laden? Okay, a few hands. I never did. I was looking for him to get, get it. But you know, really, as a Christian, do you think God loves Osama bin Laden, loved Osama bin Laden less than he loves me? Or you? I don't think so. This is the meat. Chew on this. I know some of you are going, (coughs) but it's true. It's true. We are to love our enemies. We are to bless those who persecute us. We are to be shining lights in our community. And love is the fulfillment of the law. So that's why this is in here. Paul's talking about submission to Roman authority, and he's saying, if you really let the love of God permeate who you are, then you're not going to have a problem in most situations because love is the fulfillment of the law. But here's another reason why we are to take this approach towards living in a pagan culture. And really, truly, church, isn't that what we live in today? It's, we, we often had a, a foundation in America of Christianity, uh, at least a veneer of Christianity, but the veneer is being stripped away, truly. I mean, we're really moving into a secular, pagan society and expect it to get worse before it gets better. Paul says in verse 11, do this, love, obey, submit, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That is the concept, the idea of Christ's second coming. When Christ comes to establish His rule and reign upon the planet Earth. That day of salvation is nearer now, Paul says, than when we first believed. 1900 some years since Paul penned these words. I think we're a lot nearer now than they were then. So we're to wake up because because we live in a time of great darkness. The night, however, is nearly over. And the day is almost here. That time when Christ returns is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, but back to verse 8 through 10, in love. That's how we're to be living in a pagan society, demonstrating, exercising, giving the love of God to our culture. 
Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we think about the desires of the flesh, and I just want to close up with this thought. We think about the desires of the flesh as being sexual immorality and debauchery and, and, and you know, all of the, those very obvious sins of the flesh. But I want to suggest to you that one of the desires of the flesh, one of the ways in which we, the flesh wars against the spirit in our lives is in the arena of submission and authority. The flesh does not like to submit. The flesh wants its way. It wants to be in control. It wants to be in charge. So think about the next time something happens in the newspaper, a new law comes into being, and, and you're sort of struggling. And there's really, it's not a violation of God's command. It's not a violation of your conscience. You just don't like it. That's where the spirit has to gain ascendancy over the flesh. And you give no place for fulfillment of the desires of the flesh. Jesus said, beware the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of Herod? It's simply that the leaven is a type of sin. The leaven of Herod is that idea or that concept that political power is going to gain you what you're looking for. Jesus said to beware that. See, that's what they were looking for in Jesus. They were looking for a political or conqueror, a savior, a Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome, a political Messiah. But that wasn't what Jesus was. So, when you think about politics and when you think about uh, power and government, think ultimately about the reality that God is in control. God is in charge. Now, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from political activism and involvement. I think as Christians, that's definitely a way that we can be salt and light. But be careful in that political involvement, in that uh, work within political parties to place that partisanship above the gospel. Because I'll leave you with this final thought. We do not need better government. We need better men. We need people whose hearts have been changed. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the truth of your word. Sometimes it's not so easy to swallow. We have to chew on it. We have to contemplate it. But ultimately, Lord, we have to come to a point of decision. Who's in charge? Will I obey you? Or will I give place for fulfillment of the lusts of my flesh? I just pray, Father, that as we go forth from this place today, that we really would be the best citizens in all of Gunnison.
praying for, supporting, obeying those in governing authority over us, recognizing that you have established those authorities. Being a voice, light in the darkness as well, but doing so without slander and absolutely in a spirit of love. Help us to go forth from this place owing no man anything but to love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we're going to conclude with hymn 64. I think we'll also have it projected over. Holy, holy, holy. Amen. Let's join together worship and testimony. Gather around in circle here. Just want to let you all know that yesterday, Ina Sanderson fell at her house and Fortunately, her neighbor came and checked on her. She was there for a while, she told me. Um, she's in the hospital today. She's 
was doing well yesterday, but you know, she's been having some issues. She has benign growth uh, that could be causing some heart problems, so we want to be praying for Ina um, while she's in the hospital. Pray that the surgeons and everyone who's taking care of her will get a good diagnosis and, and be able to treat what she's undergoing. Um, others, prayer requests, testimonies. Barry. Gary. We have a special guest with us. Frank and Seth Decker and uh, their dear friend Steve. Frank and Seth uh, chose to be missionaries to Costa Rica. They sold everything they had and uh, moved to Costa Rica. They picked up the three little children to us. And it's just an honor to have them worship with us Amen. today. Amen. That's one of those areas where it's easy to give honor to those whom honor is due. One more thing. Frank was uh, diagnosed with an incurable cancer. The doctor would be running down it and basically said that he don't, you're not going to live. There's no cure for this cancer. Frank had no fear inside of him. He believed that God would heal him. And he's here today to prove that our God can heal. Amen. Amen and amen. God is able to heal. Okay. Nancy. And I think that Lisa's over there with... Okay. Okay, so Lisa Sealbinder's father passed away, and she's dealing with that grief. Others. Gwenda. Welcome back, by the way. Alicia. Yeah, a little grandbaby on the way. Congratulations. Welcome. Glad to have you guys with us. Scott, did you have something? Yeah, my, uh, my wife got home. She takes care of her mother for five weeks or, or three, three and a half weeks. She got home for one day, and then we got a phone call that my mother had fallen and broken her hip and fractured her, her femur. And uh, that's a whole different story than her mother. Uh, she's 94. <laughs> she, yeah. She's 94. She has a tenor leg. She's in intensive care now. And she's 
she's pretty much on her own. So uh, she needs prayers, and she doesn't know God or Christ or anything like that, and quite frankly doesn't want to. But we're still praying for her spirit. We're still still praying for her soul. So, um, Amen. You know, that's, that's all we can do. Okay. Virginia. Virginia. Yeah. Others? wants to go for a bit. Yep. Then some training hike. Very good. Very good. Others? Okay. Just a reminder also, if you haven't done so, please fill out your question about life or the Christian faith. Put it back on the coffee bar and I'll collect those afterwards. Heavenly Father, as Gary said, you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we are able to think or imagine. In every one of these praises and prayer requests, Lord, we have boldness of faith that you will hear those requests, you will respond to them and meet those needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Pray, Father, for your name be glorified in us, among us, and around us. In Jesus' name. Sing Go in peace.